invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Jeremiah. We'll be uh, walking through portions of the final chapter, Jeremiah 52. So you're welcome to join me in that text here. And this last Sunday of Advent, as Christmas approaches, it's always darkest before the dawn, as the saying goes. So for a season, we have Advent confession, Advent repentance. Overall, at this Advent preparation precedes the joy and light of Christmas. And so we have 52 chapters of Jeremiah's words, which are all, it seems, in some way preparatory. So that at the end of his writings, we see God coming. We see his advent. And it is an advent of judgment, violently condemning the wicked. And there is at the very end, the the slightest flicker, barely visible, of hope, of God's redemption in the coming days. So, I know this is Christmas, but we're at the end of Jeremiah. So you've got to bear with me for a little while as we recount the demise of Judah's, Judah's final king, the fall of Jerusalem and her temple, the exile of God's people, because frankly, it's all bad news. But trust me, the light will shine. Christmas morning will rise after this Advent preparation if we hold fast our confession of hope without wavering because he who promises, he is faithful. Will you pray with me now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is here and a God who is not silent, but you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. We ask you now to soften our hearts and open our minds to receive and to respond to your living word. We thank you that Jesus has come. The light of the world has entered in, that he might shine for all to see your glory, your majesty, your worth. And under that glory and majesty and worth, now we bow our heads in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we've been flying through Jeremiah's prophecy prophecies here, but it's a fascinating life. It's a, it's a life that draws empathy from us as we read of what happens to him. And then we see that his life explodes with meaning as we see connections to the life of Jesus, which is what we're hoping to do some today. But before we make those connections, we've got to enter into Jeremiah's life. We need to hear his story in his own day. And so this is chapter 52, the last chapter in his book, verses 1 through Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he, the Lord, cast them out of his presence. We're going to turn our attention to this last king, of Judah, right? It's nice, right? It begins with a Z. There might be one king we can remember. Zedekiah is the last one. Now, these words of chapter 52, they're not words of flattery or compliment to this king. To imitate King Jehoiakim is not a good thing. Zedekiah's elder brother is this Jehoiakim, and, and to imitate him is to despise one's own life and to destroy God's people. Zedekiah, he has an 11-year Rain, but it's always under the shadow of God's wrath, who will soon cast out his people from his presence. He will cast out his people 
from his holy presence. Does that sound like a familiar story from scriptures? Does it sound a little bit like God being angry with Adam and Eve? He cast them out of the garden, cursing serpent and land and humanity. Well, Jerusalem was God's garden city where he would dwell with his people in his house in whom the nations of the world were to stream to them and to, to worship the living God. But this final prophecy reports that God is casting out his beloved bride from his garden city. Verses 3, the second half of verse 3. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. The garden is besieged. So we've got the garden story, but there's another story that undergirds these final chapters of Judah's life. Remember God made a promise to David that there would be an heir of David to sit on the throne forever? But here God is saying, I'm going to exile this king and God's people, and I'm going to destroy the temple. What happens to this promise? Who is this God who promises? But will he not be able to deliver this king who would sit on the throne of David forever? See, Zedekiah, he had a dad named Josiah, and he was a king like David. Zedekiah is not a king like David. And he rebels. God promises now to chop down the kingly tree of the line of David. Hope now resides in what would be a stump of Jesse. The hope would be residing in the hope that one day a branch might spring forth from what is now just to be a stump. But it says that Zedekiah rebelled. But look, who he, do you see who he rebels against? Who does he rebel against? The king of Babylon. Well, that shouldn't really incur much wrath from God to rebel against a foreign king who's trying to conquer the people. Well, throughout most of history, to rebel against the king of Babylon would have been no big deal. But for three decades leading up to our chapter here, God has been commanding them, the people of God. He said, submit to Babylon and her king. That's Jeremiah's message. Submit to Babylon and her king, saying, forget Egypt. There's no refuge there. Forget refuge in the temple. And forget the idea of miraculous uh, deliverance from Babylon, because Babylon is coming. And Babylon is my chosen instrument, God's refuge for his faithful and his judgment upon the wicked. The message is to submit to the king of Babylon throughout all of Jeremiah's prophecies. Verse 5. So the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. So this is two years of siege warfare, and it has brought Jerusalem to her knees. There's been no coming in and no going out for God's people in that city. Disease, starvation is piling up dead bodies within her walls. False prophets fuel the suffering by giving false hope. The priesthood is impotent to serve both God and people. There's no sacrifices to be found. Too few have remained, and strength has waned to the point where the unbreachable walls of Jerusalem have been broken. The elevated fortress is now invaded. Chaldeans stream like water into the city as water from Hezekiah's waterway had streamed in its heyday. The day of the Lord 
has fallen upon God's people and upon God's king. Continuing on in verse 7, And all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night, by the way of a gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army were scattered from him. Now, what kind of a king is this? I mean, stop me if you've heard this before, but as the king goes, so goes the people. As the head goes, so goes the body. And we've seen this. It's the same thing now. What happens to Zedekiah is happening to the people. It's happening to the people. It's happening to Zedekiah. Um, the body, the head is corrupt, and so now the body is corrupt throughout his entire reign. As enemies breach Jerusalem's walls, so king and people are destroyed. But what kind of a king is this? I mean, what's he doing? He's occupying all of the lifeboats, the life rafts, right? When the ship is going down, they're fleeing the city as it's being overrun. We need to hear more about who this Zedekiah is because judgment is rendered upon him and upon God's people because of his rejection of God's word, persecution of God's prophet Jeremiah. So just in brief, to try to encapsulate Zedekiah and his reign, we will just summarize just a couple of stories from chapters 37 and 38. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied for about 40 years. The first decade or so were under King Josiah, a time of peace, a time of prosperity. But after Josiah, it was one king after another who oppressed and persecuted Jeremiah. And the ruling class, the priesthood, all oppressed and persecuted our man, Jeremiah. As we look at Zedekiah's story, we can hear echoes of a Pontius Pilate. There's times where he will defend God's prophet, and there's other times he just hands the prophet over to an angry mob. So that early in Zedekiah's reign, when Babylon is starting to overrun Judah and surround Jerusalem, Egypt comes up from the south-southwest, and Babylon flees. So what's the temptation for Zedekiah? Well, Egypt is the power now. Let's side with them. But what is Jeremiah's word? Don't go to Egypt. Babylon, she's a coming back. Submit to Babylon. Don't trust in Egypt. That's always, the, that's always the phrase, right? Don't return to Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. There is no salvation there. Submit to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And because of those words, Jeremiah is given over to an angry mob who says he should be put to death. And so Jeremiah is thrown into prison, and he sits for days on end in the dungeon, fearing for his own life. Jeremiah is certain of death in that dungeon, but he's able to plead with Zedekiah. And there's a time where Zedekiah elevates him from the dungeon and puts him in the, the, the court of the guard near the king's palace. But that's Zedekiah's reign in a nutshell. Another account not only has Jeremiah going from prison, but then he's also thrown into a pit. You may remember this story. Zedekiah turns Jeremiah over once more to false accusers who seek his demise. And greedily, as they did to Joseph back in the day, right? They gather up Jeremiah and they throw him into an, a cistern with no water, just mud at the bottom, seeking to abandon him to his death. The text there just says this. This is the Jeremiah sank in the mud. It is only when one of the king's servants, it's not an Israelite, it's an Ethiopian by the name of Ebed-Melech, a servant of the king, 
this Gentile pleads with Israel's king, with Judah's king, and Jeremiah is delivered from the pit. In both cases, uh, Zedekiah is either indifferent to God's prophet or actively persecutes God's prophets. Zedekiah rejected God's word, refused his prophets. That's Jeremiah's relationship with Zedekiah. And in that, we see the life of Jesus foreshadowed, don't we? We see echoes already of Jesus. See, Jeremiah was God's very word. And he was rejected, as God said. He was rejected by those he came to save. Jeremiah was falsely accused. Jeremiah was uh, unjustly beaten by king and ruler alike. He, too, was put into a pit to die. Jeremiah pursued the narrow way of righteousness, though it caused him great suffering, nearly costing him his life. So that later when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, others say other prophets, and some say Jeremiah. His life echoes Jeremiah in many ways. We'll see the final chapter of Judah's story coming next. And in that, we're going to see that Jesus is born into the same story which Jeremiah lived. And he preaches the same message that Jeremiah preached, not for Babylon, but to submit to himself. And in many ways, he endures the same suffering. Verse 9, back to our story. Then they captured, they captured the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath and passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah and Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. This has been prophesied, right? Jeremiah warned, God's word is true and his judgment is just. His vengeance is swift. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The king has been blind to justice and so he is blinded and severed from his people, from his place, from God's house. What happened to him happens to God's people as the head goes so goes the people. Verse 12. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. David's house had been corrupted with wickedness. His kings in the house of David had been burning with lust for power. And the kingly heritage is cut down and thrown into the fire. The very house set aflame. The temple has been burning for decades with illicit priestly lust for power, for prestige, for perfection, apart from obedience and grace. And the temple has put to flames as well. The day of the Lord has come. King, priests, and people have not prepared the way for the Lord. And so it was in Jesus' day as well. As he takes on flesh, the priesthood, the religious leader, the people who Jesus has come to save, those are the very people who reject him. While those outside of Israel, they would flock to Jesus in the same way that the Ethiopian uh, Ebed-Melech would seek salvation for, Jer for Jeremiah and in Jeremiah. 
Those in need of refuge, the poor, the needy, and afflicted, those who would seek salvation, come to Jesus while those Jesus came to save rejected him. God's under-shepherds neglect to care for the poor. They heaped ungodly burdens upon the shoulders of the stranger in exile. They exercised temple ritual while their hearts burned with lust. The walls of their hearts breached with greed. Christmas, it's indeed a joy to the world because the Savior is come. But for the wicked, for those rejecting God's word, God's very prophet, who persecute God's servants, Christmas is a time of fear, of weeping and gnashing of teeth because the king has come. Condemnation is now at hand. If you read Lamentations and even portions of Kings and Chronicles, we have enough details to see that the, the siege of Jerusalem, the details are gory, repulsively violent. And in a lot of ways, what we read and see there ought to shape the way we view God's wrath against the wicked and the unjust. As awful as it is to read about these things and to think about his awful justice in this, it's important for us to have this in our imaginations because we need a king who judges justly. We have currently brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world enduring immense suffering, governing bodies in the Middle East oppressed Christians daily. Pastor and people alike are beaten, imprisoned, put to death. Other nations at best will simply try to put Christians off to the side, remain indifferent, be neglected, socially outcast. Are we prepared to serve our Lord in contexts such as this? And aren't we right then to believe that God will judge and to hope that he will condemn the wicked and the evil will not go unpunished? Which is why we pray for the persecuted church and why we prepare the way for Christ to enter into our suffering, into our oppression that we experience as Christians in the world. Verse 15 and following. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowers. People have been exiled. The garden land has vomited Israel up and out of the land. The subsequent verses of uh, this chapter 52, they record further cleansing of the city and the land of their corruption and the priesthood. Rulers are slain while the temple is emptied and burned. God is cleansing his house, his people, and the land. And that's the very same thing in preparation for Jesus' arrival in the flesh. John the Baptist comes as God's prophet, cleansing the land as well. What does he say? He says, woe to you, you brood of vipers. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can look at John the Baptist as, as one who prepares the way, who cleanses the land. And so also we read today in the passages about Jesus who was weeping over Jerusalem. This isn't a story left in Jeremiah's pages, but he, Jesus takes it on himself. He's been calling for God's priestly line and the ruling class to submit to him. 
confessing that he, he, as a prophet, as God's prophet, he can't die outside of Jerusalem. He's got no fear of dying outside of Jerusalem. For they always kill God's prophets in Jerusalem. And like Jeremiah, Jesus was again unjustly arrested. He was put on mock trial, falsely accused, slandered. A weak ruler went back and forth and handed him over to the angry mob. Jesus, too, was thrown into a pit. See, what's happening is Jesus is inhabiting the story of Jeremiah and the people of his day. God's redemption then is the same as God's redemption in Jesus. He had warned enemies, Jesus did, uh, who would violate Jerusalem, who would desecrate the temple. And his words, like Jeremiah's words, came true. Judgment was rendered. AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And the people were taken. Advent, it's a season where we prepare the way for King Jesus, who is God's prophet, God's true and final Jeremiah. In that we, we, we invite him to inhabit our lives. And at Christmas, we are invited to inhabit his life, which may not sound appealing because if you look at Jeremiah's life and Jesus' life, it's is filled with a lot of suffering and service to our king. And yet we are called to that, which is why we're called to prepare the way. As Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christmas does not gloss over the suffering and following Jesus, but it gives hope that light has come. We see clearly the justice of God, that it is swift and that it is sure. And we do well to hear the words of Jeremiah, submit to the king. But not the king of Babylon, no, but to King Jesus, who is the savior of the world, who is now ascended and reigns on high. For we will and we can endure disappointment as we walk with Jesus in a fallen world. To persevere amidst our own failures and the failures of those we love in Christ. We can press on in love and good deeds. For there is a promise that Advent night will pass and Christmas morning will rise. You can think of the best of our Christmas celebrations, whether we've experienced that or not. The, the best of Christmas celebrations... Christmas morning, there's the anticipation that is built up for a long time. The excitement of waking up early and, and opening up gifts, of, of singing great songs and music filling our homes, of, of feasting, a season of joy. It's all a, reverse, a rehearsal for the advent of King Jesus at Christmas. Because life often feels the way that Jeremiah reads. If you've read Jeremiah 52 chapters all the way through, it's heavy. It's disappointing. It's full of darkness. But in that darkness, there's a little glimmer, a flicker of hope, a flicker of light near the end here. For 52 chapters almost, we've had doom and gloom. And as the sun sets on God's wrath, it all goes dark at the end for, for Judah and her people in Jerusalem. For exile has come upon them. The temple is destroyed. But the last words of Jeremiah, the last words of Jeremiah are a little flicker of hope, as if Christmas Day is just beginning to, to dawn. We hear at the very end of Jeremiah about the second to last king of Judah, a certain Jehoiachin, ruled very briefly, surrendered to the king of Babylon and was taken into exile. Jeremiah's book ends 
recounting in the 37th year of Jehoiachin's exile, what happened? The king of Babylon at that time freed Jehoiachin, spoke kindly to him, elevated him to dine with the king of Babylon at the king's table. It says this, Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. That's where the doom and gloom ends. That is the aim of Advent preparation. Now that is Christmas. This is so much of life is filled with disappointment, destruction, and yes, even death. But the last word is one of hope, one of feasting, one of light, one of joy. To dine with our King who has come in the flesh, who comes by his spirit, and he will come again. Jesus has come. He is God's living word who comes to us in his spirit, the true Jeremiah who descended to the pit of death in order to conquer death. He is now the living temple, anointing us who follow him as living stone to be a temple given for the life of the world. There is joy even in this season of Advent preparation because we know there is joy and it is coming in Christmas morning. So we are exhorted, prepare the way of the Lord for he has come and through his spirit he will come moment by moment and one day he will come again so that all the wicked will be judged and condemned and all the righteous in Christ will be vindicated. So at the end of Jeremiah in our work here, the wish is this, throughout this day and this week, that we might have a growing sense of humility, a reliance upon God, preparing the way for him to enter our lives and the lives of those we love as we prepare for Christmas morning to arise where we celebrate a very merry Christmas. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, and now we ask you to bless it to our lives as we hear it, as we receive it. You are gracious to us, and for that we are thankful. Feed us and nourish us, strengthen us, that we might find rest and joy in your presence now and forevermore. It's in the name of Christ we pray all of these things. Amen.